The final investigator who met with me to review papers for MASH was Dr. Gary Lyman, who's a member of the Ascovenus Thromboembolism Expert Panel and also the NCCN Myeloid Growth Factor Guideline Committee. Dr. Lyman began by commenting on a number of key papers from ASH addressing the critical issue of thrombosis and anticoagulation in cancer patients. And to begin, he provided an overview of the issue. Obviously, the issue of prophylaxis in cancer patients, which is a high-risk population for thrombosis, particularly those getting chemotherapy, is an area of active research and ongoing discussion. The recent ASCO guidelines and NCCN guidelines recommended prophylaxis in hospitalized cancer patients, unless there was a contraindication, as well as in patients going through major cancer surgery. The issue, though, that remains unresolved is what to do with patients in the ambulatory setting, particularly those getting chemotherapy. There are some groups that are very high risk, like the myeloma patients getting thalidomide. We can come back to that with some of the other abstracts. But the more common ambulatory cancer setting remains unresolved because the risk is felt to be lower and perhaps the risk-benefit not necessarily in good proportion, as well as a paucity of data on whether the prophylactic anticoagulation really works there. What do we know right now about the risks in cancer patients, different kinds of cancers, you know, age, other factors, et cetera? What's the range of risk? Yeah, the range of risk probably varies from extremely low, you know, essentially zero, on up to perhaps in the range of 15 to 20 percent in the myeloma patients and in certain of the high-risk cancers, pancreatic cancers, particularly problematic gastric cancer. Patients with, say, lung cancer, even lymphoma, GU cancers, GYN cancers, tend to be more in the 5 to 10% range from many survey studies. And then breast cancer patients and others falling in a lower, probably under 5%. So there is a range there, and again, a lack of very few randomized prospective trials to demonstrate the effectiveness of prophylactic anticoagulation in this setting. In fact, including the presentation by Agnelli, this PROTECT trial, most of the data that's been presented remains in abstract form. There's only one full publication from A.J. Kakar in London. It was in the JCO a couple of years ago, the famous study that has actually been published in full manuscript form. But there are now some five, actually six now with the Agnelli study, prospective randomized trials in different settings. And the jury is still out on it, although the Agnelli trial is a positive study, and they used a low molecular weight heparin in a two-to-one randomization. The low molecular weight heparin was nadraparin. And they observed a reduction in all thromboses, and they used a composite outcome of venous and arterial events as opposed to most of the trials that look specifically at venous thromboembolism. In their composite results, they saw a reduction in risk from 3.9% in the control arm to about 2.1% in the nadraparin arm. So we're talking about fairly low levels of risk in the general ambulatory population of cancer patients getting chemotherapy. The results were significant, 
But there were also five major bleeding episodes in the nadroparin group out of some 760 patients in the two nadroparin arms and no major bleedings in the placebo arm. So it remains an issue of balancing the low risk, and clearly they demonstrated you can make that risk lower, but it's low to begin with. And at the same time, you have to accept some increase in major bleeding. And as I said, the other trials that have been presented, including the famous study, have had a mixed results, and at least four of them, additional studies, have not yet been seen in full manuscript form. So I think this is an issue the ASCO panel in their December 2007 guidelines from ASCO said that a routine prophylactic anticoagulation for the ambulatory cancer patient receiving chemotherapy could not be recommended yet until we either identify a higher-risk subgroup which is another area of active investigation risk models, or demonstrate convincingly a favorable risk-benefit ratio. What was the eligibility for the PROTEC study? Well, they had to be starting a new chemotherapy regimen and be ambulatory, but otherwise there were not a great deal of restrictions. These are patients with metastatic or locally advanced cancers, but otherwise uh, cross-disease categories. Now, what are some of the factors that increase the risk? How does age affect it? What about type of chemo? Well, of course, this is an interesting and evolving area. Age generally has not been a big factor here, although clearly on the risk side, one has to be concerned about the frail elderly patient and the risk of falls in these individuals who might be prophylactic anticoagulated and could bleed or bleed following trauma. But as a risk factor for a thrombosis, it has generally not surfaced consistently in any of these studies. The types of chemotherapy, here there was, again, a range. I think the ones that we are most concerned about based on recent studies are the anti-angiogenesis agents. And of course, there's a recent systematic review in JAMA that looked at bevacizumab and the consistent evidence that there's an increased risk in both arterial and in that study of venous thromboembolism in patients receiving bevacizumab. And as I mentioned a moment ago, thalidomide and lenalidomide in patients with myeloma, particularly, there seems to be a sufficient risk there in the 15 to 20% range for venous thromboembolism, that some type of prophylaxis is often recommended, and the ASCO guidelines panel did recommend that, even though it's extrapolation from non-randomized trials. And there was another paper at ASH actually looking at a comparison of different types of prophylactic anticoagulation in the multibond myeloma population receiving thalidomide. And we'll get to that paper in a second, but just to finish out on this, do you think that this Agnelli paper is going to change any of the guidelines, ASCO, NCCN, et cetera? My read would be no at this moment. Again, it was a positive study, and I think at the oral presentation, that question actually was put to the author, and I think he was inclined to think that this might change practice, but... As I discuss this with my colleagues and look at my own practice situation, these risks, even though you can reduce them significantly in the range of under 5%, and at the same time, 
experience increase in bleeding complications, I think leaves this an open issue at this point. And I think where we're headed with this in a number of fronts is to identify subgroups of patients within the ambulatory chemotherapy population that are the ones who are truly at risk, and to either identify biomarkers, procoagulant settings, or just a composite of clinical scenarios that represent high-risk patients to target prophylactic anticoagulation and not likely to approach this and recommend a more general approach as was represented by this PROTECT trial. What do we have right now available to try to identify people at high risk other than sort of the demographic factors you described? Yes. Well, actually, my group published a paper in Blood a few months ago of a risk model we developed based on a prospective observational study of 4,500 patients and developed a risk model, which we then validated and presented in Blood. And the risk factors we identified include, as I mentioned earlier, the site of cancer with pancreas and stomach representing the highest risk group, lung cancer, lymphoma, GYN cancers, bladder cancer, and even testicular cancer were kind of intermediate. And then other cancer types were considered lower risk. But in addition, elevated platelet count at baseline, greater than 350,000, low hemoglobin, or the use of red cell growth factors. And we couldn't separate those two things apart in our data. So either one, either hemoglobin under 10 or red cell growth factor usage was another risk factor. White blood count greater than 10,000, which may represent some underlying infection. We know cancer patients with infection are at somewhat increased risk. So we identified an elevation of white count as a factor. And then body mass index in the overweight and obese range, we actually used a cut point of 35 kilograms per meter squared. So we developed this risk score. If you had none of these factors, you were at a risk that was under 1%. If you had one or two of these risk factors, you were up in this 5% range. And if you had three or more, you were approaching 10%. And there was another paper presented at ASH that looked at this risk model and saw that it also correlated with short-term mortality. So it seems to not only predict those that are likely to get venous thromboembolism, but those that might go on to early mortality during their course of chemotherapy. This is probably not the perfect model because there are a number of biomarkers and procoagulant kind of conditions. D-dimer's been looked at. Tissue factor's a big issue, and there were a couple papers on that at ASH. I think we're going to identify some other indicators that will help us even better discriminate the high versus low risk ambulatory chemotherapy population that would be ideal candidates for consideration of prophylactic anticoagulation. Now, again, before we get into more of the specific papers, what about the issue of choice of anticoagulant? Yeah, this is an intriguing area. And of course, the gold standards have been heparin, unfractionated heparin, and warfarin going back a few years. But in recent years, many hematologists as well as oncologists have gravitated to the low molecular weight heparins for obvious reasons. Safety profiles good, don't require monitoring, frequent blood tests. They're easily reversed in patients who might have intervention, surgery, and so forth. So there was no question, both among the NCCN panel for their thrombosis guidelines and the 
ASCO panel that are favored recommendation for both treatment of an established thromboembolic episode as well as prophylaxis when indicated would be the low molecular weight heparins. At the same time, we recognize that in different parts of the world and different settings, the availability might not always be there and the use of heparin for immediate treatment and warfarin to prevent recurrence and for prophylaxis it might still be of value, but our preference would be, where feasible, the use of the low molecular weight heparins. Having said that, of course, there's this barrage of agents that have come along, and we didn't feel that it was compelling data to necessarily choose one low molecular weight heparin versus another. This past year, the FDA did accept an application and approved Delta parent for extended prophylaxis in patients with cancer with established venous thromboembolism, meaning essentially six months or so of use of, of prophylaxis. But it's likely that there are little differences between the various low molecular weight heparins for either treatment or prophylaxis in the cancer population. So one final question before we get through some more of these papers. In your own clinical practice, what are the situations where you use anticoagulation? Well, obviously patients with clots, and I do see these occasionally in my population, you anticoagulate them. More and more patients without evidence of you know massive PE or other complications are being managed in the outpatient setting instead of a hospitalization for some period of time. And then the issue in the cancer population with an established clot is how long to continue. And again, if you convert to warfarin or if you keep them on a low molecular weight heparin, perhaps at a lower dose as was done in the clot trial. And I think most of my colleagues and myself are giving the full dose for upwards of 30 days following documentation of a DVT or PE. And then at a lower dose, if the patient's willing to continue with the daily injections, out for four to six months. But it is also clear that patients particularly with metastatic disease or with continuing active cancer, particularly those receiving treatment with chemotherapy, remain at ongoing risk. So there's a compelling argument to be made that once a patient's had a DVT and they continue to be under treatment for an active cancer, probably should be continued on some type of prophylaxis for the duration of their treatment. And for some patients, that's going to mean many, many months, if not a year or more of continued prophylaxis. What about the patient who hasn't had a clot? What are the situations where you'll use preventive prophylaxis? Yeah, the primary prophylaxis setting, again, the only areas that at this point I would consider primary prophylaxis would be in the myeloma patient getting thalidomide or lenalidomide along with dexamethasone or chemotherapy or in a patient who has a strong history of previous DVTs, PEs, that I think is a particular high-risk patient. And if they fall into one of these categories, that is upper GI, pancreas, stomach, even lung and lymphoma, I would consider those patients seriously. I'd have a discussion with them, of course, in terms of risk and benefit, but I would seriously consider them for prophylaxis. What about patients being hospitalized? Well, in the hospital, yes. And in fact, as you may know, the American College of Chest Physicians recently updated their thrombosis guidelines for the general medical population. They do discuss cancer somewhat, but in concordance with the ASCO guidelines, 
there's a recommendation for routine consideration of prophylaxis in hospitalized cancer patients. I think there my approach is if the patient's coming in for kind of a brief stay, a one to two day stay for some type of procedure, and is likely then to be going home, I wouldn't necessarily always prophylactically anticoagulate those folks. But for the typical admission, patients with febrile neutropenia are anticipating at least a three day stay or longer. Those patients are likely going to spend a lot of time in bed. They're probably sicker. They may be infected. And their risk of venous thromboembolism certainly approaches 20%, and in some studies, as high as 40%. And I think they should be seriously considered for prophylactic anticoagulation. The downside is surveys done both in the U.S., and in other countries clearly show, despite the guidelines recommendations, many hospitalized cancer patients are not being prophylaxed. And so what we've put in place and others as well, based on a study from Harvard a few years ago, are these clinical alerts. So when patients hospitalized, has cancer, during the admission workup and orders, an alert is automatically prompted in the order entry system to see if you want to consider prophylactic anticoagulation. And this has dramatically increased compliance with guidelines recommendations in these hospitalized patients. The other setting where there's, of course, been fairly a routine recommendation is in the perioperative setting in cancer patients undergoing particularly major cancer surgery, laparotomies, thoracotomies, and so forth. These patients are exceedingly high risk. The surgeons have, in many instances, been ahead of the medical oncologist in addressing this issue, although there remain some unresolved issues in terms of the balance between mechanical devices, compression stockings, and so forth, versus a more active pharmacologic prophylaxis, usually with a low molecular weight heparin. And in that very high-risk surgical population, probably both are warranted. I'm curious. I know you've done a lot of work looking at the financial implications of various interventions. Prophylaxis with anticoagulation, is that cost-effective? Well, it's a very interesting question. While I've done a lot of cost-effectiveness studies, this is one area that I'm just getting into now in terms of those issues. I think it's a very relevant question. I think most have accepted that it's probably cost-effective in the hospitalized setting where the risk is so high and in the perioperative setting. But just adding to the uncertainty in the ambulatory chemotherapy setting where the risk is low to begin with, and you're talking about potentially prophylaxing everyone for a very small gain, I think it's going to be a challenge to demonstrate uh, cost-effectiveness across the broad range of cancer populations. Therefore, I think, again, the thrust in terms of risk models and identifying subgroups of patients that are truly at sufficient risk to both warrant the bleeding risk, which is small but real, and the cost, which is not inconsequential, given particularly with some of the newer agents. You mentioned multiple myeloma, and Cavo presented a paper looking at patients treated with thalidomide-containing regimens. Yes, and this is a provocative study. It was a phase three study, again, done in Italy, as much of the work in cancer and thrombosis is being spearheaded from Italy. And what they did is they took patients with multiple myeloma, which, as I mentioned earlier, ASCO and NCCN recommend consideration of prophylaxis in this population if they're receiving thalidomide or lenalidomide along with dexamethasone or chemotherapy. And they randomized to the three commonly used agents in this setting, 
low-dose aspirin, low-dose fixed-dose warfarin, or enoxaparin at standard dosing. And they followed these patients over several months and demonstrated very little effect on subsequent thromboembolism. In fact, there was no significant difference in the risk. Unfortunately, there was not an untreated control group here, but previous studies have suggested that that risk is considerably higher than the 3 to 5% range that they observed in the respective arms of this trial. So most, I think, would accept that these agents do reduce the risk in this higher-risk cancer treatment setting, but this has failed to demonstrate that there's any real advantage to one of these approaches over the other. I think if there's a trend here, although again non-significant, it's that the aspirin-treated group, although it was a low-dose 100 milligrams daily, actually had somewhat higher reported bleeding complications. But again, no significant difference across these agents. I would say, however, if one did formal power calculations, that this study was definitely on the low end in terms of demonstrating small differences between these, but certainly no major differences in protection or complications were seen between these three approaches to prophylaxis. There are a fair number of papers in myeloma looking at this issue, recommendations, groups have gotten together, et cetera. Is there sort of an overall theme about how people are approaching this? I don't think so. I don't treat myeloma patients myself, but I interact a lot with my colleagues there. And again, through the guidelines efforts, we've had countless discussions on this. I think there does not seem to be yet a consensus in treating oncologists, hematologists, the respective roles of these various forms of anticoagulation. I think most recognize the risk is high, and while there remains some concern about balancing, again, risk and benefit, particularly the bleeding risk in patients getting chemotherapy who may get thrombocytopenic, I don't think there's a consistent trend in terms of what people are doing out there vis-a-vis aspirin, warfarin, which many are using, or subcutaneous low-molecular weight heparin. Maybe I can just stop at this point and ask you, are there any of the papers here that you think are really important? I know you added a couple. Any in particular you'd like to talk about? Well, it's not specifically relevant to the thrombosis, at least this presentation. Obviously, Julia Bolius presented her individual patient data meta-analysis of the erythroid-stimulating agents where she pulled data that was provided by industry, by Amgen and J&J from the randomized controlled trials of cancer patients supported or treated in randomized trials with an ESA, and then broke out the chemotherapy-specific population. Surprisingly, the bottom line results from her analysis are very similar to the aggregate data that she published in JNCI a bit over a year ago, that there is an increase risk of mortality when you look across all trials. And she didn't present the EVT data or the thrombosis data, but we know from the previous analyses they've done that there is some increased risk in venous thromboembolism patients receiving these agents. What she didn't present and what I think left many of us in the audience kind of unsatisfied was just the breakdown by the starting hemoglobin and target hemoglobin that one would presume having access to individual patient data would 
have allowed. So I think there's, hopefully in the full publication that will eventually come out of this, we'll have a much clearer indication of where and when these agents can be safely used. Right now, of course, they're heavily restricted, and I don't see that changing based on the results of that presentation. What about the paper by O'Connell looking at unsuspected pulmonary emboli identified on MDCT scans? Yeah, this is an interesting issue. This is from Howard Lehman's group at USC, and they've previously done this, and this is an extension of some of their early observational work. And I think this is very pertinent to the observations that we and others have made that over the past decade or two, cancer patients hospitalized for various reasons Clearly, we're finding more and more venous thromboembolism cases in patients with pulmonary emboli. And the question has been, you know, is this real? Are we just looking closer? Are we treating patients more aggressively? And so we are increasing the overall risk in this population. So this is a continuing discussion. But clearly, one of the issues is that we're finding these events that were unsuspected based on generally staging studies done at the beginning of treatment or prior to starting treatment. What was interesting here is if patients in this setting, when they actually went back and dug into the charts, they saw that many of these patients with, quotes, unsuspected PE on routine staging actually had some type of symptom. They had been reporting cough or some shortness of breath or some fatigue. So they actually broke the groups down into those with and without unsuspected PE, those with no suspected PE based on staging study, which had almost no risk of uh, subsequent clot. Those with scan evidence of an unsuspected PE clearly had an increased risk of clots over their course of observation. But in fact, patients with symptoms had the highest risk. Now, these were symptoms that weren't interpreted by the treating clinician as necessarily symptomatic of a PE. The PE was found incidentally on a scan. But if you find these and the patient has been clinically symptomatic, those patients are clearly at increased risk. And that's a population I think that routinely we would want to see prophylaxed for future events. Any other sort of final comments or thoughts and perspective about this issue moving forward? Well, I think just some general observations are I'm an oncologist more than a hematologist, and I think we as oncologists have come more recently to recognize that this is a real and potentially growing problem that affects our patients, and we need to pay more attention, thus the recent interest of NCCN and ASCO in in issues around this. I think on top of it, of course, the availability of more agents and hopefully safer agents, and there are more coming to help us select the best way to treat or prevent these complications. I think where we really need to be cognizant with some of the new novel therapeutics for cancer coming along, particularly the anti-angiogenesis agents, which are very exciting in a number of disease settings, but have an effect on the vascular endothelium. And clearly, one of the issues, along with others, that we need to pay very close attention to in those populations are the risk of thromboembolism. I think it'll be important that both we review the guidelines, and particularly for hospitalized patients with cancer, and make sure we're appropriately managing those patients, but continue to evolve our assessment and stratification of patients in the ambulatory setting to identify those at greatest risk for these complications. Hopefully these risk models, as they get refined, will provide a tool at the bedside in the clinic to identify patients 
that we really should consider for upfront prophylaxis for venous thromboembolism.